Welcome to Trinity Heights. Uh, my name is Tim Kreber. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And whether this is your first time uh, joining us this morning or whether you're a regular, uh, it's really great to have you with us. Um, it's a crazy time uh, that we live in. So I hope the, this morning, uh, however you come to this uh, time together, that it, uh, you find this space uh, a helpful one to be able to reconnect with God and um, find God's peace and rediscover something of God's calling uh, on our lives. So um, this week is week four in the series of Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and some of you will know I've been lobbying Stephen uh, for a while to do a series on these chapters because of how significant they are in setting the foundation for the whole biblical narrative. It's in these early pages that we learn of what God's intentions are for creation and how when it all got distorted and damaged as hu humanity tried to assert autonomy. So I want to encourage you all, regardless of uh, what you believe or how familiar you think you are with these stories, to dive back in to the early pages of Genesis this week, this week reread them and, and grapple with the story. Uh, today, we're going to take a, a further and a further look uh, at the famous story of the fall. Stephen started this uh, last week and looked at what happened to humanity when we began to assert our own autonomy. This week, we're going to look at the impact that this has on humanity's vocation. Now, for quite a number of us, we grew up in a context uh, where we were, we were uh, taught explicitly or implicitly that the Christian faith didn't have a whole lot of relevance to say about work, which is really strange given how much work dominates most of our lives. Uh, many of us spend a huge amount of time working, thinking about work even when we're not working and being impacted by the work of others. Now, at Trinity Heights, we want to believe wholeheartedly that Jesus turns upside down our society's concept of work and the human endeavour. So view today as a conversation starter on a very big and important discussion about what we think about work in the light of a life of faith. Obviously, this is going to be very uh, incomplete uh, today and 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 uh, like I say it's just a, a thought starter. Now I'm going to approach this in three sections. First I want to take a look at how Genesis, the Genesis story in chapters one and two, gives us insight into what God's intentions for human vocation are. Then we're going to take a look at how this vocation was distorted and damaged at the moment that Adam and Eve asserted their own autonomy. This is the, the fall story from Genesis chapter three. And then thirdly, we're gonna take a look at, a very quick look at how Jesus's life reclaims and recasts God's vision for humanity's vocation. But let me, let me start with this. How do you feel about work? When I sit down and uh, think about it, most of us probably have this love-hate relationship with work. On the one hand, it enables us to earn money. It gives us something to do. 
For some of us, it's stimulating, challenging in a good way. Uh, perhaps we learn and develop as a person. We develop a skill or we develop our leadership. For some of us, our work very clearly contributes to the good of others. Or it has a very clear purpose. But on the other hand, many of us find our work exhausting. It can often prevent us from doing what we really want to do. Our employers can be too demanding or unreasonable or our work mind numbing. We may not be treated well at work or maybe we feel like we're not paid uh, appropriately. Maybe the end result of our work may not feel meaningful. Perhaps our work may actually be damaging others. And of course, the absence of work can be profoundly stressful and the search of a new job very unsettling and difficult. Now, consider for a moment the first time you meet someone. Hi, good to meet you. I'm Tim. So what do you do? It's the second or maybe the third question we ask somebody when we meet them. What we do for work defines us. It defines us in the eyes of others. It allows other people to put us in a box. Sometimes it defines us through our own eyes too. Our sense of self-worth or value gets tied up in what we do or how we're performing at it, whether we're progressing, whether our paycheck is big enough, how our performance rating is. I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that work dominates our lives, whether we like it or not. Or maybe it's just me. <laughs> uh, so how do you feel about work or the absence of it? Take a moment to be honest with yourself. What role is it playing in your life? Was it meant to be like this? Was work meant to play this role in your life? Now hold that thought. So let's start with section one. God's intention for humanity's vocation embedded in the pages of the early Genesis creation story. I'm gonna read a couple of uh, sections from the story. Chapter one. Then God said, let us make human beings so that they are like us. Let them rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky. Let them rule over the livestock and all of the wild animals. Let them rule over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own likeness. He created them to be like himself. He created them as male and female. God blessed them. He said to them, have children so that you, there may be many of you. Fill the earth and bring it under your control. Rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky. Rule over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I'm giving you every plant on the face of the whole earth that produces its own seeds. I'm giving you every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. All of them will be given to you 
for your food. And then in chapter two, the Lord put, the Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden. He put them there to farm its land and to take care of it. Now, a few points I want to highlight from these passages. Firstly, humanity was to have children and fill the earth. I think we can probably check that box. Let's be honest, having sex and the children that uh, come with it isn't high up on the list of humanity's struggles or failures, given that we're close to 8 billion people and counting on the planet. But clearly there's more to it. Secondly, humanity was to rule. We heard that rule, that word a lot uh, in the translation, to rule over creation. This phrase can easily be misunderstood due to the translation of the Hebrew word into the word rule that we read in, in the NIV translation I just read. Um, ruling, but what type of ruling is the question? Colonial rule? Poor governance? Examples of reckless rulers who care more about themselves than what they're ruling? We're surrounded by bad examples of ruling, which is why this isn't a great translation. Many scholars feel a better translation is the concept of stewardship. Humanity represented God in creation and there was a uh, and was there to, to steward it on God's behalf. Uh, there's a sense of responsibility and accountability, a sense of selflessness about stewardship uh, that we should we, that we should feel when we read these words. Chapter two uh, that I read, verse 15, has a, I think, a clearer way of putting it. Humanity was put in the garden to farm it and to take care of it. So humanity's vocation was to be stewards of creation, stewards of one another and stewards of, of the broader creation. And then the last point I want to make in, in, in this is humanity. We read the, the story and humanity is at peace with creation. This picture of farming and taking care of things conjures up images of peace and harmony. Um, but note some of the details in the text in chapter one as well. God gives humanity the plants and the fruits to eat, not the animals. Now, at this point, I need to be clear that I'm not making a case for a particular type of diet. You can go and have that discussion uh, with Stephen uh, uh, at, at your leisure another time. But in the context of the story, humanity is given the plants, not the animals to eat. And it just reinforces this image of peace and rightness in the relationships that we see in the story. Peace and rightness of relationship between God and humanity, between person and person, between people and animals and people and the broader creation. Humanity's vocation was to be stewards of this creation in a way that brought about and maintained this peace. So what happened? On to section two of this talk. How did humanity's vocation get distorted in the fall and what were the consequences of that? Well, we read in chapter three of the disastrous step that Adam and Eve took to assert their own autonomy. They ate the forbidden fruit and then they suffer the consequences. 
I want to read you, uh, read for you the section in chapter three where in the story God is laying out the consequences or the curses to Adam and Eve as a result of this disastrous action. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from, from it you were taken for the dust you are and to dust you will return. Now, after thinking about this, it actually makes perfect sense that childbirth and farming were the focus of the consequences in the story. Let's remember when this story was written in ancient Mesopotamia, where so much of human existence centred around survival, having a lot of children, because many wouldn't make it to adulthood, and subsistence farming, where every day was a struggle to have enough food. I'm always struck by my conversations with our dear friend Sasa, who works in the very remote jungles of Burma. He talks about the experience of his people, the Chin. Childbirth is so often a really exciting event in the West. But in Burma, it's a matter of life and death. Many children and women die in childbirth. And if not that, then often there are significant complications. The, the courage of women needed to face this event with, with no hospital, no doctors, no anesthesia, no clarity in what the outcome would be. Uh, it's it's unimaginable. Not too different from thousands of years ago, I suspect. So no wonder that the curse includes included in this story relates to childbirth, because it was a significant part of the community's experience of pain. And then there's the issue of food security in the Burmese jungles. Almost every year there's a crisis that impacts people's ability to provide food for their families. Farming and the search for food make up a significant portion of the community's time. And at every moment, the community's on a knife edge about whether they'll survive, whether they'll have enough to eat. Again, not too different from the experiences of communities thousands of years ago. Childbirth and farming were two pivotal human experiences where so much pain and suffering are found today in the world's poorest communities, but also back then. So no wonder they're the subject of the curses and consequences by God in the story. But I don't think our takeaway here is to focus on childbirth and farming specifically. In chapters one and two, humanity is given the vocation or the job of multiplying and filling the earth and of being stewards of creation, of farming the land. So it's no coincidence then that in chapter three, 
we read that the rebellion of humanity leads to the dysfunction being introduced to the core of the human vocation to multiply and to farm. Our takeaway from the story is a bigger one. God's intention was for humanity to live in rightness and peace in relationship with God, each other and be good stewards and carers of creation. This was our vocation. But we find ourselves far from this, with broken and dysfunctional relationships with God and with ourselves, with others, and with a very abusive posture towards creation. This is not how it was supposed to be. So let's reflect for a moment on our modern day work. It's not difficult for us to immediately think of many examples where work falls short of rightness of relationship and peace with humanity. Growth at all costs, offshored and poorly paid labourers, poverty and inequality. I saw a headline on Friday um, that the richest 50 Americans today are now worth as much as the poorest 165 million Americans. Covid has made the richest richer and the poorest poorer. And it is work that is driving these things. Unless we feel that these things don't relate directly to our particular line of work, so many of these trends are powered by consumers. And so we all find ourselves caught up in this system that is a far cry from how God intended the human vocation to be. But there is more to the fall of the human vocation than just the consequences that we enact on one another. It is about all of creation. I'm reminded while we're back in the UK that the reality of the climate crisis is not a debate anywhere else in the world. We're losing species at a terrifyingly rapid rate. The destruction of habitat and forests is accelerating. Even though those forests hold our global climate in balance and are the lungs of our planet, unpredictable weather patterns, increasing extreme weather and climactic events, we're a far cry from being stewards of God's amazing creation. We are, in fact, literally, as a human race, destroying it and we're suffering the consequences. And just as Adam and Eve were not innocent bystanders to the consequences in the Genesis story, neither are we. As active participants in society, as consumers, as workers, we too are caught up in perpetuating the destruction of creation. I'd encourage us this week to pause and to take stock of these things the scale and the magnitude of, of what is happening in our world is, is mind-boggling. The acceleration of inequality, the acceleration of the destruction of creation. These are our modern-day examples of the consequences of humanity's inability to live out its vocation. 
it's sobering stuff and and as i've been thinking about it this week i i've found it really challenging for myself so let us not too quickly rush to to uh solutions but let us dwell in the conviction that hopefully we all feel about this reality but lest we dispen, dis, descend into a, a pit of despair and depression, let's move on to the third part of this talk to find hope. The fact that Jesus's life recasts God's vision for the human vocation. There's a lot to say here and, and we don't have time. Um, so let me just read you a snippet from Luke chapter four, just to get us thinking. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He has set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The author of Luke's Gospel puts this at the heart and the start of the Gospel. It's Jesus' manifesto. In this passage, he's proclaiming the work that he's about to go about and set about doing. We read in the rest of the gospel the stories of how Jesus spends his time bringing these things about. These words and many others uh, in the gospels recast God's vision for the human vocation and they centre it on Jesus. Humanity's vocation is now tied up with the life of Jesus, to work towards a kingdom that restores all of creation back to those intentions we find at the start of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So we are left with this question. Can our work, our vocation, participate in these kingdom values? Now, if you're like me, you find this uh, all somewhat overwhelming. It wouldn't be helpful, nor would it be accurate for us to draw up a, a really prescriptive list of things that we should all go away and do. But to bring it down to the world of the practical, here's a few very admittedly limited thought starters. Do you lead other people? How do you treat them? How do you pay them? How are you using that position of leadership to bring about blessing and healing and peace to those people? Do you buy things or help your workplace to buy supplies? Where are these things coming from? Are they sustainable for the planet? Where were the people involved in their production treated fairly? You know, one of my uh, nieces uh, can be really tough to do grocery shopping with because uh, she will call you out on all the plastic and packaging that comes with food. Uh, and she'll challenge you not to buy those things that come wrapped in plastic. She's devastated by the, the damage that plastic is doing in the world, especially in the oceans. And she passionately challenges you to use less plastic. I love that about her and I often think about her when I'm grocery shopping um, and try and avoid plastic packaged food as a result. 
Do you consume electricity or plastic? Are there more creation restoring ways that you can do this? Does your work afford you opportunity to interact with others? Does that present you with an opportunity to serve or to pause and ask somebody how they're doing, regardless of how they treat you? Can you hold off defining and valuing others by the work that they do? Don't ask the question, what do you do? in the, the second sentence when you meet somebody. In the early part of our marriage, Ruth and I lived in West Philadelphia for about four years. And um, we lived on on this this block in a relatively poor part of, of, of the city. And not once did anyone ask me what I did for work. Despite the fact that I traveled up to New York City every week, um, but our interactions were, were full of how we could be neighbourly to one another, caring for our block, our neighbours, one another. And I found that really challenging because my instinct was always to talk about what I did at work because of how significant that was to my identity. I'm not sure what you make of my list here. Um, and obviously it was just a quick one to get the thoughts starting. And I'm not saying that this list is... Uh, is um, something that I have a great track record in myself. But I just want to encourage us to sit down uh, and to start thinking about how we can shape our work around the kingdom values that Jesus sh shows us. The point is not to be laden with guilt or to be so overwhelmed that we do nothing, but rather in the context of God's grace to continue to take courage to begin the journey of stepping into the vocation Jesus invites us into. One that restores humanity's vocation to care for and to steward all of God's creation. Let us pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning and uh, we we all experience that we are far from what you intended and so much of what we put our effort and energy into in the week in the form of work is um, not necessarily uh, bringing about the restoration of creation and we ask for your forgiveness we ask that you would convict us of the of this that we would be more readily able to see the destruction that some of these activities cause. But Jesus, we, we also pray um, that you would give us a fresh courage to participate in the kingdom that you announce, a kingdom that restores all of creation to God's original intentions pray that you would help us to take practical steps to, to, to participate in that, even though that is difficult and goes against the pervading behaviours and patterns of our society. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.